Welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast provides you with self-help resources for handling anxiety, stress, and overwhelm. It is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks for tuning in. And now, let the chaos begin. And the chaos has officially begun because, oh my goodness, I have all kinds of tabs on my screen and it's like driving an airplane or flying an airplane or whatever. I'm so glad I have Stacy here with me to calm my chaos for me or help me to do it. So uh, here we are at the kind of the end of the National Eating Disorders Association Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And what I thought we would do is drum up an old presentation that Stacy and I did about a million years ago at a local community college. Stacy is gonna introduce herself when I bring her up on the screen. And uh, yeah, we're gonna talk about myths, about myths and facts about eating disorders. And so without further ado, I will bring Stacy Schilter Paisano up on the screen. Stacy. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Calming the Chaos Live. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining me today. This is so fun because I remember that day in front of all those students in community college and we were doing this PowerPoint presentation. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you're right. I think it was a million years ago. I was trying to think of when it was. It might have been 2000. 10 2009 who knows yeah it was around that time frame so that's crazy how much time has gone by and how long we have known each other i think we met in 2007 right when i was graduating and we were doing free eating disorder support groups around the area and boy oh boy we're gonna have like an anniversary in 2027 right we'll do something fun absolutely let's yeah well, so Stacy, why don't you just take a moment and introduce who you are and what you do, just like in normal podcasting fashion, and then we'll get into the presentation and see if I can handle myself, okay? You'll do wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> so I am Stacy Shelter Paisano, she, her pronouns. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor in that realm. I've been working ooh, in the field of eating disorders in various different capacities since 2001, um, but became licensed in 2007 uh, when I started my private practice where I met Tracy. And currently I work for the EMILY program as a director where I've been for since 2014. Um, and at the EMILY program, we offer services that range from outpatient on up to partial hospitalization programming. And the site that I work out of is in Olympia. Nice. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks for introducing yourself. And so here we are. We're going to go ahead and I'm going to check the chat every so often to see if there's anybody there that has any questions. But please, if anybody's listening, it looks like we have four people uh, lurking. If you want to chat, go ahead. If you have a question, please ask it in the chat. I'll be checking the chat every so often here. So we'll go ahead and share our screen and bring up the presentation. 
All right. Everybody can see that all right? Let me check it out. Good. All right. So here we are, both with our certified eating disorder specialist supervisor moniker here. And so we're just going to jump right in to myth number one. Eating disorders are a choice. And I'm going to check in with the chat and see if anybody has any feedback about that. Uh, myth or fact. And we'll see if any of the lurkers come out. Looks like we got some kid eating a hot dog and something else and a strawberry. Uh, no feedback. Well, what do you think, Stace? Is it a myth or a fact? Eating disorders are a choice. Well, I think you kind of give it away when it says myth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. See, this is what I mean about Stacy keeping me sane, right? <laughs> yes. I love the idea of talking about this, though, because I think people do have this notion that eating disorders are a choice or a phase or an attention-seeking behavior pattern, and that just isn't true at all. Eating disorders, as we know, are biological brain-based conditions that are influenced by environment, psychology, and various different things that contribute to their development and maintenance. Right. So it is indeed a myth. And of course, under the fact section, it does uh, refer to that uh, eating disorders are complex mental health conditions. They are actual diagnosable conditions. Below are the ones that and I actually had to update it because when we did this back in 2010, we didn't have uh, avoidant uh, restricted food intake disorder, the very last one on the list, ARFID. And also, I don't believe binge eating disorder was in the DSM back then. Uh, certainly not EDNOS and OSFED. I believe it was just the three. Oh, hmm. Maybe EDNOS was in there. What do, what do you recall? It's been right. so long. I think this was this is what's fun about looking back at this presentation or this deck of slides is, you know, that it is a little bit dated, but that's what makes it more fun to review. So, yes, binge eating disorder wasn't in there yet. Binge eating disorder entered the DSM-5 in 2013, and ARFID wasn't yet in there, so it's in there now, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And eating disorder not otherwise specified isn't in the DSM-5. Now it's... Um, unspecified feeding or eating disorder. So we um, right. do have these, you know, kind of five commonly di diagnosed eating disorders along with the unspecified feeding or eating disorder, which isn't used very frequently by clinicians or diagnosticians that are familiar with eating disorders. Right. And I actually, yes, it's other specified feeding or eating disorder is in there. And then unspecified feeding or eating disorder is in the DSM. Yeah. One thing, if I may, while, we, while yeah. we're on this slide, because I don't know if it shows up anywhere else, I think one thing to call out here is that we do have anorexia nervosa, you know, as a diagnosis, but then also what falls under OSFED is atypical anorexia, which has kind of become much more common or prevalent on the scene and in our awareness and unspecified, sorry, atypical anorexia is, you know, when an individual is engaging in the same pattern of restrictive eating, you know, and um, fear of weight gain and all of those things, 
but um, as, a, as a result of those behaviors, their body hasn't necessarily changed or they continue to be in a higher weight body. And I hate, but I'll avoid getting on this platform. I hate that so much is contingent on the body mass index because the yeah. body mass index is an outdated um, system of measuring things that Tracy and I am sure could talk about at length probably won't um but the difference between anorexia and atypical anorexia oftentimes falls off to the bmi and unfortunately atypical anorexia is far more common than anorexia yeah so the definition of atypical anorexia nervosa is all of the criteria for anorexia nervosa are met except that despite significant weight loss so there is weight loss and significantly so the individual's weight is within or above the normal range which as stacy mentioned the medical people use the bmi and as actually the dsm uses bmi when you look at anorexia nervosa and the criteria that is present for that Individuals with atypical anorexia nervosa may experience many of the physiological complications associated with anorexia nervosa. So that's pretty important, too, that they may, as a result of their uh, significant weight loss, they may actually experience a medical condition. And so that's um, often uh, a challenge. And so I'm glad they put that in there. Mm -hmm. uh, it is com more complicated now than when we were first doing this slideshow. There was just, it was so much simpler back then. But, um, now I have to actually read the DSM, which thank you, Ken's Counseling Couch, for giving me the DSM. So I've got it on my Google Drive now. <laughs> it's the new TR, um, which I haven't bought yet. Have you? No, I have not. So yeah. I find I'm, I'm a little envious that you've got the copy. My puppy actually chewed on my DSM. Oh, it's it got, must got love on it. <laughs> it must. Yeah, your your puppy might not like diagnosis. And a lot of people don't like don't put me in a box. Don't yeah. diagnose me. Maybe your puppy's like that. So. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, oh, actually, we have a couple more slides. And some a lot of these Stacey already uh, hit on is that a variety of biological, psychological, culture, environmental fact factors, our social, uh, social media, media influence, they contribute to the mental health conditions that can actually result in the behaviors of restrictive eating or binge eating, a purging, whatever the behavior is, or avoiding food. Um, so yeah, I think my husband picked out this picture. Actually, I don't know where he found it, but it's interesting because there's body distortion quite a bit when we look at people who have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add to this slide, Stace? No, I think I'll piggyback just a tiny bit on the body dysmor the body yeah. distortion because I think that is such a reality for folks with eating disorders is there is that body dysmorphia or that inability to see one's body as it naturally is. And just fun fact about that, that has to do with um, the structure and function of the brain in a particular area of the brain that um, finds oneself unable to see reality as it is. And so somebody might perceive themselves much larger than they actually are, which can be really problematic and contribute to that body dissatisfaction. So what we see in this picture that Timmy found, you know, somebody engaging in what we call body checking, that mirror checking or that body monitoring of looking in the mirror checking to see like, has my body changed? Is my body okay? There's so much preoccupation um, with the eating disorders that have a body dissatisfaction element to them. Yeah, I, I, um, I guess 
I have a question in the audience. Hi, Jeanette. Hi. Well, okay. So the question, it, it's a question. It says BMI is no longer used. It is used. It's just that Stacy and I have some judgments about the BMI, right? And, and I think she said earlier that we could probably spend a lot of time talking about that because BMI only takes into account height and weight. It, it doesn't have any other measure. That's how they figure out the BMI. So medical professionals will use it. Uh, they used to use, when I first started on this in this field, they used to use the, what the Met, American um, insurance, uh, like life insurance uh, tables. Yeah, we had to use tables and look them up, you know. Uh, but now they use the BMI as a me measurement, and then they they actually use it as a measurement of of health. And I don't agree with that at all. Um, Stacy, do you want to have anything to say to Jeanette's question? They don't use the BMI or anything else to add about the BMI that I didn't touch on? <laughs> uh, just that sadly it still is used. And part of the reason Tracy and I have judgments about it is it is outdated um, and it was developed not with the intention of using it for health markers. And it was also designed um, based on European white males. So it does have some racist and classist roots. And then, like Tracy said, it is just with relation to height and weight. So it doesn't take into consideration any actual health markers, but we do make decisions. We don't. Um, but decisions are made based on uh, the BMI and we're put into different categories based on our own personal BMI. And unfortunately, just because somebody is in a particular BMI class doesn't mean they all share common health realities and yet they're treated in similar fashion uh, by medical professionals. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so Jeanette is asking a follow-up question about what measurement would you add? And, uh, you know, so I think you kind of touched on it right there is that the health markers, right? I mean, the, the actual functioning of, of people uh, who have, uh, you know, it, like a medical condition uh, that may not be and often is not based upon the BMI or their body size, weight or shape. It could be due to some other factors. Right. But yeah, what other measurement would you add if we were to create the perfect measurement for health? I don't know that that'd be possible, but it would be more comprehensive than the BMI is what, um, what Absolutely. I think. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I would suggest looking at the health realities, you know, so, and then using evidence-based treatments for those realities. So for example, if somebody has high blood pressure, which is sometimes correlated with being in a higher body weight, um, there are treatments for people with high blood pressure. Somebody in a lower body weight, you know, can have high blood pressure and they're told maybe to move their body more. They're told to, you know, balance out their intake. They're told to treat that high blood pressure with evidence-based interventions, not necessarily told you need to lose weight because unfortunately weight loss efforts, intentional weight loss efforts fail 95 to 98% of the time. And weight loss itself is not an evidence-based treatment for the medical conditions that people associate with elevated BMI. Man, isn't she great? <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, you can tell that Stacy is in the field. She is the site manager at the Emily program, which is the 
the treatment center here in Olympia, Lacey area, and she just knows her stuff. I <laughs> am still in awe of you. Um, thank you for that eloquent answer. Mm -hmm. And for the moment anyway, Jeanette is satisfied. Excellent. All right, let's move on. Thanks for the question, Jeanette. Yeah, yeah. So, so then we talked about this earlier. They're off. They're often uh, struggling with emotional or mental health conditions, and so the mental health conditions are occurring, and then the eating behaviors are happening because they are using food to cope with emotions. And so, uh, whether it be restricting food, uh, binging, uh, purging, uh, overexercising, all of the above, they're usually struggling with mental health conditions. Now, ARFID would be one of those ones where the mental health condition would probably be fear, because there's been, you know, or or uh, disgust. It it has been characterized as being sort of a sensory, or like if they are avoiding food because they are, they would gag, or they would. Um, get nauseous or it just the texture is weird. They're not avoiding food for purposes of losing weight, but they have lost significant weight or are underweight or have some sort of a medical condition that's going on. So anyway, it is mental health, even with, with ARFID. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? I would highlight that upwards of 75% of folks that are living with an eating disorder do have a co-occurring mental health condition. So that might be a depressive disorder, an anxiety disorder, attention deficit disorder, you know, something else that's going on. And some of the eating disorder behaviors may be in response to that. I do like to emphasize to folks that while eating disorders are not a choice, they oftentimes can be viewed as an adaptive response or the behaviors can be a form of coping, like Tracy was just saying. Um, a long time ago, therapist had a quote that said, the problem's not the problem, coping is the problem. And so sometimes those behaviors are used as a method of, quote unquote, survival, getting through really challenging times or managing a really uncomfortable internal experience. And we also have a high incidence of trauma with folks that struggle with eating disorders. Not all, but some have encountered some form of trauma in their lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then the treatment becomes, let's get them different methods of coping. Let's identify the emotional struggle and let's get them uh, de different and better, uh, more effective methods of, of coping. So there you go. All right. We're on to myth number two. Uh, you can tell if somebody has an eating disorder from their appearance. And as Stacy pointed out earlier, since it is a myth, it is a myth, right? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but some people do think that you can look at a person and say, oh, she's got an eating disorder or he's got an eating disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, uh, no, you cannot tell if someone has an eating disorder from their appearance. So the fact is that people of all different sizes experience difficulties with eating. So you just can't tell. You have to talk to them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm 
Yeah, absolutely do. I think, unfortunately, that is a stereotype or 100% a myth that you can look at somebody and know if they're struggling in their relationship with food. The reality is that size diversity does exist. And so we have people all along the continuum of sizes that exist in this world without eating disorders. And we have people in this world across the size continuum that might struggle in their relationship with food. So you can't make an assumption or have any knowledge about a person's eating pattern or what's going on for them based on their size alone. Right. Yeah. You cannot tell if a person is healthy either or unhealthy at a certain mm -hmm. size, right? Absolutely. All right. All right. And so it looks like that's what we just said. Moving <laughs> on to myth number three, eating disorders are not dangerous. It's just another diet, right? I think <laughs> Timmy got these pictures as well. So right. they're... <laughs> Thank you, Timmy. Yeah, you gotta love Timmy. Uh, yeah, so they're not, you know, and I've had people, uh, and I think you have too in your practice, who have actually wanted to get an eating disorder. They want to, um, but you know, they are dangerous. I've had people say, "I wish I had cancer so I could gain, so I could lose weight," um, which breaks my heart, right? Uh, but I know we've both heard that um, eating disorders are dangerous not only physically but mentally, emotionally, and I believe the statistics are, I think, is this one that has the statistics? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Wrong. With a big capital, capital <laughs> letter, all caps, right? Now, these, point. Yeah, these statistics may not be completely accurate because um, I did not um, update these, but it might, they might be. What do you think, Stacey? 95% of dieters regain their weight. Yep. So it's about 95 to 98. So some studies, some research has um, evidence that up to 98% of those who diet will regain their weight and sometimes even more than where they started. Um, so we know that eating disorders aren't just a diet gone wrong, you know, and dieting in and of itself can be a precursor to disordered eating or can activate a clinical eating disorder. Uh, one in four dieters will go on to have a problematic relationship with food or a clinical eating disorder. And dieters are three times more likely than their non-dieting counterparts to develop an eating disorder. So I always feel like if we know that dieting one isn't effective in the long term, right? Like Initially, people might, you know, be able to suppress their weight or, or decrease their weight in some way. But over, you know, time, you know, up to by, by the two year mark, usually people are starting to regain the weight that was suppressed. Um, and so it's something to be aware of. And then secondly, if we know that dieting can activate an eating disorder, it's so discouraging that dieting is so common that we live in a diet culture that promotes dieting and glorifies this thin ideal and vilifies particular body sizes, encouraging us to you know, just diet and reduce our weight. But that can be so problematic. This is another one I could soapbox on. So I'm going to come back to center. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah. And so it's not a lie that the diet industry makes so much money off of something that doesn't work. Isn't that crazy? It's um, it's for me, mind blowing. And if people just knew that dieting really has that recidivism rate of like 95 to 98 percent, even if it is over a two year period of time, people 
typically will regain their weight. The, uh, the idea is, is to develop a, a good relations, re relationship with all foods. I think the, is the slogan for the EMILY program still all foods fit, Stacey? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Right. With all the foods. And so, but dieting actually restricts the foods. And then eh, really when, when that happens, it makes you want it even more. Mm -hmm. Or if you get overly hungry, it invites a, an overeating episode to happen. So, so really it's, it's in the long run ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like the mindful slash intuitive eating approach. And um, so, but some people aren't able to do that. They'll have to get through some emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. So, all right. And real quick, Trace, because yeah. what we were, the myth we were addressing on this one is that eating disorders aren't dangerous. Um, it's just another diet, right, is what led us into this kind of diet conversation. But I think I'll just circle back to that idea that eating disorders are extremely dangerous. Um, really, every hour in the United States, somebody dies as a result of an eating disorder or eating disorder related complications. And, you know, Trace and I know when we're treating our clients, you know, one of the things that we need need to have is medical oversight because so often each of the disorders have their own medical concerns to really be aware of and to have that medical oversight is necessary to ensure medical stability and to make sure that we're intervening when there are complications showing up as a result of malnourishment or purging behaviors. Um, we need to pay attention so the individual is, is medically safe. And, uh, you know, I would I love encouraging therapists uh, to do this work, to work with eating disorders. And yet there's a lot of scary things, because, as Stacy said, there's medical complications that often happen. And then yet, ironically, so the so the eating, uh, I think it's anorexia nervosa is the deadliest mental uh, mental illness in the DSM. And but ironically, it doesn't happen through malnutrition most of the time. The number one cause of death in anorexia is suicide. And so there's the mental health piece again, right? Um, these are mental health conditions and they have physiological consequences as well. So yes, 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 they are dangerous. <laughs> All right, on to myth number four. Only teenage <laughs> girls have, why did we put that in there? But I guess that is a myth, right? Mm -hmm. Totally is. Yeah, only teenage girls have eating disorders. Uh, the fact is that many, and it's on the rise. You would probably know if that 10% is pretty accurate. It's still about males. It still is. Yeah. So males struggle with eating disorders too, and uh, increasingly uh, body dysmorphia as well, right? Mm -hmm. And also um, what we now know, and this was you know less in our awareness when we initially made the slide deck, but that the LGBTQ plus population is actually more likely to struggle with an eating disorder as well. So we're, we're not yes. just talking about men or women, girls or boys. We're also talking about non-binary folks, transgender individuals, because there are risks associated with disordered eating in all populations, obviously, but eating disorders really don't discriminate uh, against, you know, anyone for their their lived experience in this world or the identities that they hold. Yeah, the intersectionality of the eating disorders and also the LGBTQ uh, plus community and male to female 
I think in particular, mm -hmm. um, that is really problematic. And I'm just so glad that some of the educational events we've done have um, worked with people who are uh, within that community and are able to help us understand it. And we're helping them to understand the eating disorder side of it as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that second fact about the fastest growing population with people with eating disorders is middle-aged women. Is that still true? I don't believe it to be true at this time, but I don't know which population is. Um, I think yeah. the eating, eating disorders in general are extremely prevalent. And unfortunately, the pandemic had saw an increase in eating disorder diagnoses, people seeking treatment for eating disorders, people calling the national helpline to get help for an eating disorder. So back in, you know, 2010-ish when we did this, you know, middle-aged women were the fastest growing population of people struggling with eating disorders, but I don't believe that to be the case any longer, though middle-aged women do continue to struggle and eating disorders can develop in middle age. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the average age of clients, and you probably have more to choose from seeing the populations, but but I, I still think it is the young younger people that um, right now, anyway, after the pandemic, are coming in with a lot of problems with food. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Oh, God. All right. So myth number five, skinny models are the problem. And this one, I think I put the fact on the page because I just didn't want to keep on this slide for very yeah, long. Like Triggering oh, images. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yes. Uh, so they are and they aren't. Um, they're not the problem though. There's, there's so many different factors. So they're they do uh, experience the cultural pressures to be thin. And we have on our social media, Instagram and all that other stuff of these images now that are very triggering. And just remember, there's just a variety of things that contributed to disordered eating and body dissatisfaction. So let's get off that slide. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so here are some of the things that actually do contribute. So there's mental health concerns as we talked about before, the emotions that are challenging and people using food, eating, restricting, binging, purging, over-exercising to uh, cope, feeling out of control and then this identity piece is huge. And I think right now too, people, young people especially are struggling with identity, which is why I think that the young people are probably the fastest growing with eating disorders is because they are, so, they're so confused, not only about, you know, gender stuff now, but they're confused about how they fit into the world. How, what are they going to do uh, in, in, as far as a career of uh, finding a relationship, all those developmental milestones uh, people just seem to be really stuck. That's what I've been noticing in, in my practice. Uh, what about you, Stacey? Yes, absolutely. The identity concerns certainly factor in and are relevant. I think what I would add to this fact is, you know, while those skinny models certainly don't help, no offense, skinny models, there's 2% of the population that are actually designed to look that way uh, genetically. But I would say that with regards to what contributes to their development, people do ask like, well, what caused the eating disorder? There's no one thing. So it's not one particular problem. And what I would add to this slide now is diet culture. I mentioned it earlier on a previous slide, but diet culture is this kind of system of beliefs that equates 
thinness or muscularity or particular body shapes with health and moral virtue. It's that, you know, idealization of a thin ideal and a vilification of certain bodies. Um, and we're mm -hmm. steeped in it from the time we are wee little things. I mean, even Disney movies that kids are watching at age two, right, has, um, you know, not a lot of size diversity represented. And so from to your point about identity, where do kids fit in? Where do they belong? How do they get that sense of belonging? And how do they get their emotional needs met? There is like kind of social capital associated with having a certain body size, which can contribute to the sense of my body needs to be different. My body is bad. I need to change my body in some way. And so I think part of, you know, our prevention efforts can go into having kind of an anti-diet lens or resisting diet culture, rejecting diet diet culture, educating about diet culture so that we can see what's real instead of what diet culture would promote. Beautifully said, as per usual, Stacy. Awesome. So let's go on to myth number six. It's all about the food. Well, it, there was actually a, one of those, when I was at an IADEP symposium, it, there was a presentation about what if, what if it is about the food? Did you do that one? I think that was a pretty popular one. Like, what if it is about the food? So maybe this isn't a myth anymore. Um, let's see. What did we so. write back in 2010? <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about anything. So I think it's technically a myth because it's really not all about everything, but it's all about the food. The food is the focus, not the cause. And people use food in several different ways. And uh, it's the tool that they use to cope. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that? I think that IADAP presentation, if I'm remembering the right one, I was actually surprised it was at IADAP. So for our listeners, IADAP is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and Tracy and I were at a conference. Um, I believe I was shocked that was at the IADAP conference because I think it was actually talking about food addiction, and I'm going to put that in quotes, um, and this notion that foods are addictive, and that's what can contribute to binge eating disorder, for example, or even to bulimic behaviors because there is a binge eating component to bulimia. Um, and I was shocked it was there because the data supporting food addiction is, is still not um, convincing. So essentially, there's been a lot of studies on mice, um, you know, looking at the impact of of food on our neurobiology or our neurochemistry. And there's, you know, you'll hear quotes out there about food is more, or sugar is more addictive than cocaine. You know, well, the reality is the mice were restricted from sugar before they were given the sugar, you know. And so when Tracy was talking earlier about the binge restrict pendulum, where we restrict our intake, we tell ourselves we can't have a particular food, and then that food actually becomes that much more shiny or that much more appealing. Um, in the same way that these studies on, you know, animals were done, they limited their access to the highly palatable food and gave them, you know, mice or rat chow. And, um, you know, then when they gave them the highly palatable food, whatever that is in mice world, um, they overindulged, they overate that food, you know, and they made themselves unwell as a result of eating that excess. And that was their evidence that food is addicting. And it's like, well, I think it only exhibits addictive elements when 
when we're actually limiting that food or engaging in some kind of cognitive restraint around that food, telling ourselves we shouldn't be having it or telling ourselves that it's bad or whatever it is. So I think, um, you know, this the idea of that symposium talk was like, oh, there's addictive elements. And it's like, well, the verdict's still not, not in on that. Yeah, and I think I remember, I recall thinking, well, it could be all about the food if you do have a food preference and you don't like a food or if it's ARFID, um, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake uh, Disorder, ARFID, where there's a, you know, an unpleasant emotion associated with the food, but it, it's never just all about the food. Uh, so that is technically a myth. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, gosh. Back to the BMI. Oh, why did we do this, Stacey? Oh, my gosh. Number seven. My BMI is too high. Is that a myth or a fact? It's a myth because we say it's a myth, right? My BMI is too high. What the fact. We, we already talked about this, though, but here it is again. Uh, the BMI does not take frame, muscle, or body type into consideration. Also, like Stacy said earlier, it does not take other health markers into consideration. So... Um, your BMI can be to, you know, hot on, on a higher level or whatever they say on the scale. But what, what I don't like is they have the categories of, you know, obese or morbidly obese. And those categories, I, I just, it really, um, provides some emotional distress to people when they, when they are told by their doctor, those words, right? Absolutely. And I think the reality about BMI or, you know, even the statement, my BMI is too high, people might unfortunately be told that, you know, by a medical practitioner, you know, your BMI is too high or, you know, you have landed in this category, you know, and we need to intervene on that. Or now with the new American Association of Pediatric Guidelines, you know, we might be hearing about ugh, children's BMI being too high. And I think what we need to push back a little bit on is, you know, what is the actual health status, regardless mm -hmm. of category in the BMI, you know, what is health status? Because you can have people all along the BMI continuum that are, you know, cardiometabolically cardio healthy, and it's completely all right. An example of this is, um, I, this dates me a little bit, but Michael Jordan, for example, had an elevated BMI. I think his BMI would have put him in the obese category. Well, we all know Michael Jordan, you know, was just an extremely muscular human. You know, it wasn't that there was actually, you know, adipose tissue or an excess of adipose tissue. You know, he was just a very muscular human. Um, and so I think when we hear any feedback about the BMI, we do have to push back a little bit or, you know, we can even request, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about my weight. I want to talk about my overall health. And, you know, you can actually tell the doctor that you don't want to be weight. You can, you can make that request. Yeah. I think it's maybe time for my life domains palm tree. I love this thing because also when we look at health markers, uh, of course, physical health is going to be in there. So your laboratory tests, but we're talking about mental and emotional health. How well are your relationships functioning and you functioning in relationships, your emotional and spiritual health? Those are all things that we want to take into consideration. And this is my quick diagnostic tool. If it is affecting, if your food intake or 
a thing, uh, anything, any way that you're using food is affecting any of these major life domains, then we want to look at it. You know, it may not be a disorder, but we'll want to pay attention to it because that those are markers of different sort of health. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Let's go on to myth number eight. People can decide what size they want their body to be. They can decide. Hmm. This is where I think we use our dog analysis. I love <laughs> our dog analysis. Do you remember this, Stacy? Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So what was the example that we used to give? And I think it's in the upper left, which is the, what if the, you know, what if the, is that a Dalmatian? I don't the bigger dog wanted to be the Chihuahua, right? It is. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. People are built differently, right? Yeah, and the the dog analogy I think originated from um, the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health has a video on YouTube. Y'all can look it up. Um, that's called Poodle Science, and the Poodle Science video does talk about this idea that you know, like dogs, you know, and some people don't like being compared to dogs. But, you know, when we do have a, a mastiff and a poodle, or we do have, you know, I have a little, I don't know, what is he? A Lhasa Opso Maltese dog at home, and I have a chocolate lab at home. And I can't, you know, restrict my chocolate lab's intake down to the size of my little Lhasa Opso Maltese. And I can't feed my Las Osso Maltese into the size of my chocolate lab. Like we all have different sizes. And if people are averse to um, being compared to dogs, we can look at trees, look at all the different types of trees out there. They're all trees, but some of them, you know, are, you know, taller trees. Some of them are a little more bushy trees and some of them are, you know, smaller trees and more frail <laughs> trees. Um, you know, so I think just that reality that our genetics determine our body shape and size, our genetics determine our height and our bone structure and the size of our feet and the shape of our faces, whatever it is, it's our genetics. We don't just get to choose and try and manipulate our body shape and size. And when we try to manipulate our body shape and size, it unfortunately results in a high amount of preoccupation and distress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Be your tree. I remember that. Be your tree. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jeanette has another question and uh, you might want to take this one, Stacy, because you are so eloquent at answering these questions. My gosh. Um, all right. So she's asking, is it correct to say the focus should be on healthy eating in moderation rather than quote diets? Uh, so still on the eating uh, part, um, and it gets a little bit, for me, it gets a little bit wordy when you say healthy, but um, what do you, what would you have to say is a, is a good way, good general way to look at food and eating? Mm -hmm. I like the question. I would say what we strive to help people do is get to a place in their relationship with food that they are experiencing a sense of peace. There isn't, you know, a lot of food rules. There's not a lot of, you know, external information telling us how much or what we ought to eat because our bodies have this innate ability, you know, to choose the foods that we want and eat the amounts that they need, you know, when we actually tune in. And I think, unfortunately, from a pretty young age, we're taught to kind of tune out or we're taught not to attend to our body's natural hungers or our body's natural preferences because those food 
rules do start so early, whether it be you must clean your plate or you shouldn't eat that or you need to do X amount of movement in order to make up for that. Whatever it is, we start getting these messages very early on. And so we we lose touch with our body's sense of what and how much and whether, you know, so I think the idea of all foods are fine food. I think, Jeanette, what you said about like all, all foods are fine food in moderation. You know, I think I would just hesitate to use that in moderation too much as a rule because then we can get in our heads about, have I already had too much sugar, for example? Or is this a moderate amount of sugar? Like we can start overthinking it as opposed to, you know, is this still tasting pleasurable to me? Because really when our bodies are satisfied, the pleasurable sensation of the food decreases. So I think when we return to this place of attuned, or Tracy used the term intuitive eating, and intuitive eating is, you know, a whole movement. There's a wonderful book, a wonderful workbook about getting back in tune with your body's natural hungers, because your body can be your guide when you attend to it or when you're listening. Um, Right. Yeah, and all foods fit, right? And again, there's that deprivation aspect of saying healthy foods and and what is and healthy is a judgment. So what's healthy for one person may not be for another, especially if we're talking about and we didn't even talk about uh, orthorexia, you know, or perfect perfect eating. Um, so they may think uh, only certain whole foods are are healthy, which is not the truth. Uh, but definitely paying attention to your hunger and fullness cues and being able to respond with foods that you find enjoyable and um, and that have nutritional value to it, you know, protein, carbs, and fats, keep it simple. That's uh, that's really the way I look at it. Uh, so, so there's that. Thank you again, Jeanette. Um, this is so cool. We got a person that's asking questions. Thank you. Yay. Okay, myth number nine is uh, just eat. Myth number 10 is just stop eating. So there's like <laughs> two, we got a two for one here. And um, they're both myths here. Um, So the fact is, it's not that simple. I remember uh, this, uh, this father who came in, uh, well, and a bunch of fathers just think that, you know, just eat a sandwich. You know, what is so hard about this? Just eat the sandwich. And it's not that simple. Mm -mm, Not at all. I think especially for individuals that do struggle with restrictive eating disorders Um, which could include anorexia or um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Like I said earlier, there is a biological brain-based aspect to eating disorders. And so for that individual, the idea of eating can be terrifying, can be so threatening, can feel nearly impossible. I, my dad went, um, skydiving once. And I told him, dad, I ask my clients to do really hard things. I should go skydiving with you because it's equivalent to that for some folks to take that next bite of food or to consume an adequate amount. You know, it can be that challenging. I'm afraid of heights, by the way. I did not wind up going, which, you know, I really think I should. I don't want to shit on myself, but I do think I should because that's the equivalent of what we're asking our clients to do. It's so difficult to do the thing because of what's happening for them and because of the noise that's going on in their mind. It isn't just a choice. It's really, really challenging. And on the flip side of just stop eating, likewise, 
brain-based, biological conditions, not a choice. And so to just stop eating is not simple at all. It can feel nearly impossible in those moments of compulsive need or in compulsive wanting. So I think being able to not simplify, um, because we do hear this, I think from parents, from loved ones, just saying like, how difficult can it be? And it really is very, very difficult. It is because it's an there's an emotional component to it and rock on with your dad. I had no idea he was cool before, but now he's just like his coolest level has just raised in my eyes. I know. Um, I admire that. Uh, I admire the courage of anybody that's willing to jump out of a plane. <laughs> yeah. And he's the one that mows the lawn in perfect diagonals too, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, he's that dad. <laughs> All right. Okay, on to myth 11. We're almost done. Uh, mm -hmm. Overcoming an eating disorder is easy. All I have to do is see a therapist or read a book. Well, that might be part of it. Yeah, but uh, I don't know that overcoming an eating disorder is easy, and that's not all you need to do. Uh, it's hard work to overcome an eating disorder. Both Stacy and I have struggled with eating disorders in the past, and it's not easy. <laughs> and I think along with the difficulty of the initial recovery, like moving beyond it, and part of the reason it's not easy, again, biological, brain-based, you know, it has to do with neurological um, elements, it has to do, to do with brain structure and functions, so you're kind of acting opposite what feels innate um, when you're in the midst of a struggle, and the eating disorder serves a function. What I was talking earlier about adaptive response, coping, it serves a function for the individual. And so that contributes to how difficult recovery can be. And unfortunately, eating disorders are relapsing conditions. And so even folks that do enter into a place of recovery, whether it's full recovery or kind of a pseudo recovery, you know, they do have to protect that recovery because if they were vulnerable to developing an eating disorder, once there's a vulnerable vulnerability to relapsing into the eating disorder again because it did serve a function and because you know their system is vulnerable to developing that condition or to those behaviors that they previously engaged in. And so on this slide, it does talk about needing treatment, not, not just a therapist. Like we do recommend therapists, dietitians, psychiatrists, doctor. We encourage a treatment team for that wraparound service as somebody's, you know, getting well and support people or family members are also critically important. Yeah, and Stacy is the site manager of, uh, well, I think everything is in-house at the EMILY program at the current moment, right? Yep. Our, well, our residential is out of house. It's up in Seattle, but we do are able to do outpatient IOP, PHP or residential um, for individuals. And we do offer both virtual and in person for all of those levels of care. So we're trying to make it really accessible for folks that are living with an eating disorder and striving to recover or needing support as they're moving through that recovery process. Yeah, and that's why an assessment and a good assessment is really super important because it, then they will know what level of care that you need and where to send you for additional treatment. And so it's so complex. So it's not easy. Uh, it's complex even in the assessment process just to figure out what level of care, whether it's outpatient, IOP, which is intensive outpatient, uh, PHP, partial hospitalization, residential, uh, even uh, inpatient um, hospitalization and or acute care. I mean, there's just so many levels 
Yeah. And just a quick call out or a plug, maybe, um, Tracy, <laughs> what you do as an outpatient provider in the community, we need more Tracy's for anybody watching this. Um, you know, we the, there is not sufficient or adequate support available for the millions of people that are living with an eating disorder and that need help. And so we do need more providers working in the community, working in treatment spaces where um, they can provide treatment. So whether it be just eating disorder informed providers or eating disorder specialists can be beneficial for our um, prevention of eating disorders, for our treatment of eating disorders and intervention on these life-threatening conditions. Yeah, I'm at the point to where it's like we we do need more Tracys out there and um, we do need <laughs> more people who are not just certified. You don't have to be certified. And I know IADEP's probably not going to like that I said that, but you, if you're willing to work with this uh, population, we have some free consultation groups that you can, if you have a problem with it, uh, come join us sometime as Stacy actually leads one of those groups uh, and uh, just had one yesterday. Sorry, I would have joined you, but I was at lunch with Katie Hart. So um, yeah, Katie says hi, by the way. Hi, Katie. Um, yeah, yeah. And so if you are a therapist and you happen to have an interest in eating disorders and you're not scared and you want uh, you want a bunch of referrals, we, we do. I mean, that's a really it's sort of um, saturating to me uh, because there's so much need out there. Please uh, give me a contact, give me a call, give me an email or something, and we will help guide you through that process because we do need more professionals out there treating eating disorders. Yes, absolutely. Okay, this is the last myth. As soon as I arrive at my goal weight, I will be recovered. Look how happy she is at weighing zero pounds. <laughs> She's happy. It's like, I've disappeared. I'm recovered. Okay, well, obviously that is a myth. Um, you know, and recovery is interesting because, and we even had, when we were doing these uh, support groups for the public, we even had one specific group on what does recovery look like, right? Mm -hmm. And it is a complex discussion so that we are probably not going to have on here, but we'll just suffice it to say that it is a myth that when you reach your goal rate, weight, you'll be recovered. And it really does have nothing to do with recovering from an eating disorder. When those major life domains are in order, again, keeping it simple, look at the palm tree. We have to put the palm tree back on the screen. <laughs> I'll put the palm tree back on the screen just because I like it. Um, and yeah, when these things are all in order, that is my opinion. That's the simple, you know, quick and dirty you know, when your feelings, thoughts, behaviors around food, eating, weight, size, shape are no longer preventing you from living your full life. Your life domains are in order and you're eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, uh, eating uh, foods that are pleasurable and uh, not having any excessive, uh, you know, thoughts about food, you know, preoccupation with food, when all that goes away and you're able to live your life, um, it is, that is when you're, uh, in my opinion, recovered. However, there are some some people who say my recovery stops here, and I want to honor them as well. Uh, what do you want to say about recovery, Stacey? I think I would add, I agree with you on all of those things. I think I would add that everybody's personal recovery looks different. So recovery is very individual specific and what that looks like for you. I think on this slide, we did say like your personal goal weight range has nothing to do. I'll, 
not to add, you know, some confusion, but I think for the eating disorders that do result in a suppressed weight or a weight that's lower than a person's natural body weight, we as providers do want to help them get back into their quote unquote goal weight range. So from the time we're little, we are on a growth curve and it's where our body just genetically gravitates. It's kind of just where our body is meant to be designed, right? meant to be designed, meant to land. And um, so for the eating disorders that do result in weight suppression, we do want to help that weight restoration happen, which can be a very uncomfortable process for some individuals. But even then, once somebody has arrived within their goal weight range, which is going to be you know, a goal because then our mind is working more optimally, our heart is functioning more optimally, our bones are you know, more safe than they would be at a weight suppressed um, place. Even then, it can be really hard. Uh, just from a personal standpoint, having recovered from an eating disorder, I think I w- was in my goal weight range um, at some point and was still radically struggling with food behaviors, with um, body dissatisfaction. There was so much preoccupation and so much distress related to my relationship with food. And to Tracy's point, uh, you know, all of those domains were being interfered with. There was functional impairment in my life as a result of what was happening. Even though technically, you know, I was in goal weight range, I was not in recovery. That's an excellent point. And I'm glad you said something about that because yeah, it goes back to those major life domains too. And the physical functioning of your body is on that major life domain. Uh, palm tree. Yeah. And just one more call out on that, because that slide said your personal goal weight range. I think a lot of folks that might be living in higher weight bodies, you know, do have a personal goal related to their weight. You know, and this goes back to that idea of we get to choose what size our body is. You know, it's like, well, I want to be at that weight. And as soon as I get there, I'll, I'll be good. The reality is too, when we are weight suppressed, when our body is lower weighted than where it's naturally designed, you know, we are going to struggle with concentration, with mm-hmm. the ability to process information, with food cravings and food focused thoughts because we're hungry, which is totally understandable. And so I think that idea of personal goal weight range, we've got, you know, the clinical goal weight range, and then we've got this idea in our mind that diet culture probably informs about where we'd like to be. It's like, let's discard of the scale. Let's not, you know, aim to be a certain weight size because where our body naturally lands when we're living well, coping well, eating well is where it's meant to be. Beautiful. Yeah. So we got all through the myths and hopefully people uh, learn something. Uh, We're going to take a quick trip to uh, the National Eating Disorders Awareness Week uh, website here. And there's the the link to it. And I'll put it also in in the notes. But we're going to just take a little quick trip over there. And this is the the actual uh, advertisement here for the um, the NIDA and National Eating Disorders Awareness. Uh, <laughs> they changed oh it, Trace. They are not calling Nash. it National Eating Disorders Awareness Week anymore. They're just calling it Eating Disorders Awareness Week, and I have no idea why. It used oh. to be NIDA. Now it's EDA, um, but it's put on by NIDA. 
not confusing. That's, I mean, I'm a little confused because this is nationaleatingdisorders.org. It's the same website, but yep. it, it's not. Okay. Yep. Yes. So that's February 27th to March 5th. Now that I'm back on track here and not spinning around. And so it, it go to this page and it'll explain a lot about the schedule of events. They have some pretty cool things. They've got some blogs. They've got uh, some Instagram lives that you can listen to. And so every day this week, they've been going through some different stuff, some different uh, topics. And some of them are uh, maybe more interesting than others. Looks like uh, Thursday, they had a cultivating a culture of body acceptance within the fitness industry, which looked interesting Ooh. to me. I saw that on Wednesday. And so now it's up. So you can click on any of these and you can learn a little bit more about eating disorders. In fact, this is a great website in general to get tools for, uh, you know, for family members, for people who are struggling. There's the helpline and the chat. There's a screening tool. It's just an all around great website to go to. Um, you have anything to say about it, Stacy? Oh, just fun fact, way back in the day um, when NIDA was Eating Disorders Awareness and Prevention back in 2000, I worked there. And I, because it was a nonprofit, <laughs> um, we didn't have the ability to hire like web design teams. So I actually, a long time ago, it didn't look like this, worked on this website. I learned about HTML and how to work on the backside of a website on this website, which is fun. And I was also answering the helpline at the same time. Which, I didn't know about the website. I knew about the helpline, but I didn't know you worked on the website. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I did all <laughs> I didn't, kinds of information didn't. out about the, the shelter family and, <laughs> and all this unrecognized talent. <laughs> awesome. Well, I also have on my, uh, so let's see. Oh, I didn't even create a banner for my own website. Let's just really quick go back and go to my website. And now I'm pretty proud of this um, website that I built myself, um, but it is um, a really cool, comprehensive recent. This is the view from my office, by the way. <laughs> I always have to show fun. that off. Um, but it's really super comprehensive resources page, but, but, but down on the bottom, there's this eating disorder resources and there's some free, there's a lot of free stuff on here. Um, I really need to redo the lettering on here, maybe make it bigger or something like that. But there's some podcasts, there's some, um, some websites, some of my favorite websites. So there's a lot of self-help resources that are out there and you can go to my website. Let me see if I can type it in really quick without being too loud. LokahiCounseling.com. There we go. That is my website. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more and seeing that research resources page it has mental health resources and it also has at the uh, at the scrolling down it has the eating disorder. I think I got through this. We got through this presentation, Stacey. I couldn't have done nearly a good, as good a job if you were so here. Fun. With me. I'm so glad that you were able to come. Let's just really quick check on YouTube. Um, there was a comment that I chose not to address earlier um, because it was a comment. Um, and I think it may have been maybe a joke, 
because the comment was, I eat only on Tuesdays when I want to diet. So I don't know if that's a trolley comment, but I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know that that's a question. Uh, but if that's something that you, you do, um, then, you know, you may need to, you may need an assessment is one of the things I would say. So, but if you're a troll, then you just do your troll thing. <laughs> I didn't, I don't delete comments. I mean, I'm a mod on my own channel, but I'm not going to delete comments because I believe in free speech and all that other stuff. So yeah. well, thank you so much. Awesome. This was super fun. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, uh, I'll have to see you again in real life. It was cool seeing you this summer. Um, uh, I have a lunch scheduled with another therapist I haven't seen since before the pandemic. So um, yeah, thank you so much for adding your expertise mm -hmm. and for joining Calming the Chaos. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. You can find all Calming the Chaos podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon, and on YouTube. You can also go to www.calmingthechaospodcast.com for more information and to see all podcast episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.